And we're back again, and opening day is right around the corner. We're doing 1911 baseball again. Uh, Brett, a.k.a. PQ River, with you. Um, reading you stuff. Uh, and, boy, these shows, are we're just going to get longer and longer. Because, as you well know, the preseason, you're... You get limited news, and once the season gets going, and as it picks up momentum, oh yeah, uh, I'll be doing a lot of reading and commenting, and uh, hopefully your ears will sustain the barrage, because I really want to be thorough. I was going to do just the uh, evening world the New York paper that we've been looking at today, but it's short, and I think we can do better. So we're going to have uh, both papers today. And uh, starting right off is Joe McGinty's, McGinnity rather, his Braves in battle with Giants. Uh, Iron Man won't be able to pitch, though, as his arm is in a sling. Now, we all know about Iron Man Joe McGinnity. I'm not 100% sure when in his career this is happening. Uh, I'm learning as much as you guys, uh, and maybe by the end we'll all be far more informed of this dead ball era year 1911. Uh, it may take a while. Uh, it may take two seasons or three seasons of real baseball to get through this, but we are determined to get through 1911 uh, one way or the other. And we're going to start things off. I, I don't even know when in the uh, Hall of Famer Iron Man Joe McGinnity, a guy famous for being able to pitch both games of a doubleheader. I mean, I don't think they would let a pitcher do that today, even if they were really trying to. Oh, man. Anyways, uh, let's get rolling here, because even without my extraneous comments, uh, this is going to be a long one. Joe McGinnity's Braves in battle with Giants. Iron Man won't be able to pitch, though as his arm is in a sling by Bozeman Bulger. Joe McGinnity, with his arm in a sling, will bring his Newark Braves. Okay, this is not our um, major league Braves. Uh, he'll be bringing, I guess it's a minor league team for the Braves, I'm guessing, over the river this afternoon as sparring partners to put the finishing touches on the giant and groom them for the big splash. The Iron Man himself will be unable to perform on the slab this afternoon, and that is a cause for sincere regret among his many friends in New York. For the past two years, Joe has taken a whirl at his former teammates on the day before the firing of the big guns, and the fact that he will not today is no fault of his. While cranking an automobile, yes, they have automobiles in the minor leagues, his hand slipped and the crank bar flew around and broke his arm. That means that the Ironman will do little pitching during the season. Man, can you imagine having a car and having... To, we are stepping back 
into another time. This is just so great. On account of the weakness to the Newark pitching staff caused by that accident, McGinnity has asked McGraw for the loan or purchase of a good young pitcher for the rest of the season. McGraw has promised to do the best he can, but as yet has not picked out the man. He would have given Newark Hal Rustenhaven, but McGinnity wanted a right-hander. As a result, Rustenhaven was sold outright to Springfield, Illinois, and the team from which came Larry Doyle and the other notables in the big league. The most surprising deal yesterday was the farming out of Clyde Fullerton, the former Princeton player, to Baltimore for the season. He was the best of the infield recruits, according to McGraw, and it was expected he would be kept for some time. The uh, Giants manager decided, however, that it would be better to put him in a place where he could recall him if necessary than to wait for the big cut in May where the surplus players must be disposed of to anybody that wants them. Fullerton will do great work for the Orioles, and Jack Dunn can count himself a lucky citizen. This afternoon, McGraw will give Lewis Druck a thorough tryout, and if he's going well at the end of the fifth inning, he will pitch the entire game. So far, none of the pitchers has pitched a full nine-inning game. The selection of Druck for today means that he will not pitch tomorrow, and the fact that Raymond worked yesterday probably eliminates him as a season starter. To simmer it down, it looks like it looks as if Ames will have to shoulder the burden, even if it is a bitter dose and a shock to his superstition. That little affair with Jersey City was about the best batting practice the Giants have had so far this season. The Skeeter management, composed of Mr. Ryan, gave us a curveball pitcher with plenty of speed, and McGraw says his man showed the benefits received from shooting at Jimmy Digert's curves in Baltimore on Friday. They cracked the bullseye with such a startling regularity that the fans who ordinarily revel in base hits grew tired of the monotonous raps. In one inning, every man on the team got a hit, and Matthewson and Doyle got a pair. Out of four times up, Red Murray peeled off four safeties, one of which was for three bases. He then retired in favor of a fellow who really felt like hitting the same, being Otie Crandall, now known as Rowdy Jim since he became manager of the Colts. During the eight innings at bat, the future hopes of Coogan's Bluff took unto themselves 19 safe hits, and every one of them was the kind that sung. When the shadow boxing is over this afternoon, the Giants will take a long sleep, and if nobody puts dope in their tea, they'll come back tomorrow. What a, what, what a phrase, if nobody puts dope in their tea. One more day's practice for Hilltops, and then, yeah, those Yankees. Although, for some reason, this paper, the other papers talk of them as the Yankees, but, I, well, I guess it refers to the actual place where the uh, stadium was at that time. Manager Chase has only 10 of his men with him at Wilkes-Barre today. Uh, Wilkes-Barre, PA, April 11th. One more practice spin, and the Hilltoppers are ready for the hard race for the American League pennant. Same practice takes place today on the Wilkes-Barre grounds, which, has, which was granted manager Hal Chase and his shot-to-pieces team. But 10 men survived after the battle at Scranton yesterday, but the expected arrival of Bertie Cree and Gene Elliott would increase it a bit.
Jack Knight made the trip to New York yesterday afternoon after the Scranton game. Roy Hartzell took a flyer to Old New York to dig up rooming quarters for the season. Jack Quinn, Walter Blair, and Charlie Hemphill, who left on Sunday, will not be on hand until the ball sounds in the Quaker City on Wednesday. But more than those will be there. Manager Chase has drafted many of his boys from his second team, and those who will report in the brand new traveling uniforms of the club at Philadelphia will be Jack Warhop, Louis Brockett, Roxy Roach, and Earl Gardner. It's Sweeney reports that his cold has almost left him and that he will be there with the Spangles on two on the opening day. Those of the other fellows who belong to the club will remain in New York and put in some practice on the hilltop between themselves. As yet, Chase has disposed of only one of his younger army, and it will be several weeks before he parts with any more. But all the recruits are not to go. Bill Bailey will stick, and so will catcher Joe Walsh for a while anyway. Dutch Ravel, the pitcher, who has had a hard time getting his wing into shape this spring, will be given the opportunity to get on and will stick until the limit day, May 15th. It is certain that fielders Bernie Kauf and Albert Jube will be sent to some Eastern League club for further development, and so will infielder Lishy and pitchers McGrainer and Sykes. Catcher Russell, who has never played league ball until this season, will be put in the Bridgeport Club, which is managed by Gene McCann. Just a little experience is the thing that that boy needs, and it is predicted by the sharps of the game that in two years he will turn out to be as fine a backstop as there is in any league. Not only is Russell a good catcher, but he has the eye of a cob when he is at bat. And that's the evening sports page. Yeah, I think business will pick up considerably. So uh, let's move over to Washington, D.C. and uh, see what is cooking here. Uh, Oh, yeah, Walter Johnson to be in first-class shape before he has worked. Oddly, I mean, we did read yesterday's paper, did we not? Uh, But Johnson is there. So uh, I assume that uh, after days of just talking and talking about Johnson and his controversy... He's, he's back, and uh, no doubt, better than ever. He's still young at this point. This is 1911. He's going to have himself some incredible seasons, possibly even this one. Johnson will not pitch opening game tomorrow. McAleer proposes to have his star pitcher fit before he will use him. Baseball Gossip by J. Ed Grillo. Walter Johnson will not be pitched in the opening game tomorrow. Pitcher's not due to arrive until Wednesday afternoon, and having spent most of his time on train since last Thursday, would hardly be ready to pitch a hard game of ball. Furthermore, McAleer does not want to place Johnson in an embarrassing position. If he should not be on at his best on opening day, some of the fans who resented his stand might display their disapproval, and McAleer does not propose to subject Johnson to any annoyances. It is not supposed that Johnson, who has not practiced for nearly a week, could be at his best, and he will probably take several days' work out here before he will be shoved into a game. McAleer has heard nothing from Johnson against his coming here other than the press dispatches announcing his leaving his home at Coffeyville. But McAleer has felt right along he would report on time 
and get into the fold. It develops that Johnson wired a proposition here yesterday, which was turned down, and the club's reply was to the effect that it stood by its original proposition, and that if he did not report here on Wednesday, he would be suspended. This ultimatum seems to have caused Johnson to take the train for Washington. It'd be foolish for me to use Johnson in the first game, said McAleer. I can't imagine that he will be at his best after so long a layoff. I would want to see him work out a couple of days before I will pitch him. I would not want him to get away badly under the circumstances. And when I send him on the rubber, he will be fit, even if it is several days after the season opens before he pitches. It is questionable whether Tris Speaker will be in the game's Boston plays here. The crack hitter and fielder was sent home to Boston several days ago, suffering with a bad cold, and it is doubtful if it, he will be able to play. There will be no regrets on that score here, for Speaker has been very successful in the games against the Nationals, and his absence would increase the locals' chances for victory. As successful as Speaker was against the local pitches, so easy was he for the Athletics. In all the games he played against the champions last season, he made but four base hits, it apparently being impossible for him to do anything with Max pitchers. Bertell is another player who will not be in the Boston lineup on opening day, having injured his throwing arm so that he will not be able to play for several weeks. If Dolly Gray shows good form in the workout at Georgetown Field this morning, he will be chosen to pitch the opening game against Boston tomorrow. Yesterday, Gray seemed to lack control, and McAleer was undecided this morning as to who could be used in the opener. It is believed that Dolly will show better form today. However, if he lacks control, Dixie Walker may be substituted Wednesday with Groom also being considered. The team will take its last workout on Georgetown Field today and will take its first workout on the local grounds tomorrow morning. Superintendent Jim O'Day has the field in good shape now, a steamroller being all that is needed to put on the finishing touches. Nothing that has ever happened in Jim McAleer's baseball career has pleased him so much as the announcement that Walter Johnson had left Coffeeville and would be here Wednesday. While McAleer stood pat on his proposition to Johnson, he dreaded to go into the campaign with his star pitcher, a holdout. It was plain to the manager that his chances for making a good showing this year would be greatly decreased with Johnson out of the fold, and his coming is more pleasing to him than it is to the thousands of admirers of the big pitcher. Rumors that Connie Mack intended to get rid of first baseman Hauser led to the belief that manager McAleer might make an effort to get this player, nothing could be farther from his mind. It is up to us to develop a first baseman, and I think we have the man in Henry, said he. He is a youngster, while Hauser is near the 30 mark. Besides, he did not show up well last season, though in one game here he looked like a wonder. I am willing to take my chances with Henry, who is sure to develop into a great ball player. Bunting is not sure to go to Richmond. There are several other clubs anxious to secure the youngster. Oh, Bunting is a person for a second there. I thought Bunting referred to uh, the actual, you know, taking the bat and just tapping the ball. He will be pitched where the local club can get the best results out of him. The gates at the ballpark will be opened at 1 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, while the game will start at 3.30.
Oh, that's neat. You used to be able to get in there, watch. That's two and a half hours. Hopefully uh, the hot dog vendors are out there and you can get some pop and some Cracker Jacks or I don't know. Maybe they serve beer back. Yeah, I bet you they serve beer back then. No player on the local list is in better shape this spring than Charlie Street. Anyone doubting this will be convinced the first time Street appears in a game of ball on the local grounds, which may be Wednesday, though it has not yet been decided whether he or Ainsmith will be behind the bat. Street promises to have his best year, and that's saying a good deal when his wonderful work during the season of 1908 is considered. There's no trace left of the rheumatism with which bothered him last fall, and besides catching in his brilliant fashion, Street is showing much improvement in his hitting. The well-known leather goods man, James S. Topham, once more comes forward with an offer of a handsome suitcase for the first Washington player to make a home run on the local grounds this season. The finest suitcase in stock will be at the disposal of the lucky player. Ooh, here we go. Gambling makes enemies for players every time. No matter which way the game goes, one party is always sort some member of the team. Now, uh, let me just express my uh, historic opinion of professional sports and gambling. I have always posited that professional sports would never have come to exist if not for gambling and gamblers. What professional sports did is give an official, like boxing, it's not just two guys fighting and there's nobody, there's no overseeing body that's even pretending. And uh, that was the idea of professional sports. And I think at least up to the infamous 1919 season, uh, gambling and gamblers uh, were a serious part of our national pastime. This is at a Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, special dispatch to the star, dated April 10th. Um, Ban Johnson, Tom Lynch, and every league head are making efforts to stop gambling on ball games. A Kentucky firm that was formed for the purpose of making baseball bets this year brought upon itself the harsh criticism of every baseball official. And when Huey Jennings got a bunch of form sheets from this company with requests that they be distributed among the members of the Detroit team, Jennings paid a bellboy to burn the papers in front of the hotel. Not another member of the team saw one of the samples. Betting on baseball games has been on the increase year in and year out. In some cities it is done openly, although against the law and order of every big league lot. In some cities, hundreds of dollars are wagered on a pitch ball and on the outcome of a certain player's turn at bat, to say nothing of the thousands that are wagered on a single game. Players dislike betting. Not only do owners and officials protest against baseball betting in any and every form, but the players themselves are strictly opposed to it. There is sufficient reason for this. Jim Delahante gives the reason for the players' objections. Supposing a man goes to a ball game and makes a hit 
makes a bet that you will hit the ball. If you hit, you stand ace high with him, and the other fellows is down on you, while if you are put out on the out, the conditions are just reversed. On an individual baseball bet, you are almost sure to make one enemy, because no one likes to lose money. Bad either way. Again, if you are playing in a game and a lot of money is wagered on that game, you are sure to get some enemies if you have an important part on the contest. Supposing it is your hit or stop or catch that wins the game. Why, every fellow who bet on your team will be for you. While if you boot one or fail to hit in a pinch or miss some other chance to win the game, whether it is your fault or not, the fellow who bet on your team will be your sworn enemy. You are bound to get it in the neck, going or coming. The Cubs will have a tough time this year, gathering the followers they lost during the World Series last fall. They lost several thousand. Chicagoans and other patrons of the Cubs were backing them off the boards against the Athletics. The Cubs did the best they could. They hated to lose the winner's edge of the series receipts as badly as the backers hated to lose their money. But the public does not take that into consideration. As Mr. Delahanty says, the public hates to lose coin, and when it does, somebody gets blamed. Vaughn will pitch opener for Chase. Big Jim is slated to oppose athletics in inaugural battle Wednesday. Hartzell is to play short step field. Roy has won a regular berth, while Johnson replaces Elliott the third. New York, April 11th. Manager Chase has practically made up his mind to pitch Big Jim Vaughn, better known as Tiny Jim. Did he become Hippo Vaughn, I wonder? In the opening game at Philadelphia next Wednesday, the big left-hander was never going better, and according to himself, his arm was never in better shape, and he hopes to keep it that way for the big kickoff at the home of the world's champions. It is the present intention of Chase to pitch the Big Texan, as the athletics are none too good when it comes to hitting the pitchers who fire them over the platter with the left paw. There's only one thing which will keep Jim from working on opening day, and that is cold weather, or if his arm should go bad before that time. Vaughn has had a great deal of trouble with his arm last season, which kept him out of the game for some time. The wing never felt better, said Jim the other day. When a pitcher's arm is bad or any player on the club has a bad arm, he loses all the ambition he has to play baseball. My arm is ready now to go nine innings, but I am going to nurse it along for the big bell to ring. That's the time it counts the most. There is nothing wrong with my arm now, and the trouble I had left season, last season has left entirely. It's getting stronger all the time, and I look for a corking good season with the good ball club we pitchers will have working in back of us. I will be on deck to hurl the pill over next Wednesday if the weather is any way agree agreeable, and Chase says the word. Chase has good catchers. Manager Chase is very enthusiastic about his catching staff. The outlook for the receiving end of the Yankees, so far as the catchers are concerned, never looked better. Chase has decided to use Blair and Sweeney in most of the games. In fact, the two mentioned will do all the catching unless injury hampers their work. It cost the New York club a large heap to get Blair back, and those who saw him work for John Gansel say that Farrell will not lose anything by the deal. 
Blair is a husky young fellow and a pretty good hitter for a man behind the gun. No one doubts the ability of Sweeney, and some are predicting that he will be the best catcher in the American League this season. Then there are Joe Walsh and Bob Williams, the new men. Walsh and Williams will no doubt be carried as a club often goes in a hole for catchers. The catcher has a tough job and is likely to be put out of it any old time. The man who hands us the forecast on the weather has given us some inside stuff to the effect that there will be good weather for the opening of the baseball season hereabouts. Chase and his men are in good condition. Ford, who has been complaining of a sore arm, is rapidly bringing the wing around in good shape. Harry Walter, who was hit in the arm by a pitched ball, still has a sore wing, but will be ready for the blow-off next week. Walter, sure to play. There's been a rumor that Walter would be replaced in the outer works. Ask Chase about this, and he will give you the laugh. We have it on the best of authority that Walter will start off in right field for the Yankees. He is one of the fastest men on the club, and who could count the New Yorker secure to play that field any better than Walter? Chase never intimated that Walter would be replaced and hasn't the least intention of doing it. It looks now as a certainty that Johnson will start at third base and Hartzell at short. It may be that Cree will replace Daniels in the outer works, but this will be decided in a few days. Cree can hit, and that's the reason Chase wants him in the game. When the Yankees finished up their two games with the Reds, there was a great deal of praise given to the New Yorkers, not alone for the club, but for Chase and his work at first base. Here is a sample of it from a Cincinnati player. Yanks did well in the South. The Highlanders right now are one of the most advanced teams in the business. They took kindly to their Southern training. The club, as a net proposition, is far ahead of the average in condition and playing speed. It could go right into the arena today. If the regular season were open and come pretty near slamming the lining out of all competitors. Chase has his men going grandly both on the offensive and defensive with every department of his team in perfect working order. Fine for today, but how about the latter later weeks? Will that that energy be foamed away in the spring, leaving the club as link as as limp as a wet rag by July? The Highlanders look as if they would start the campaign with a rush. It is hard to figure where any club can stop them going the way that they are at present. But how long will that energy remain? Pertinent comment on happenings in Sportum by J. Ed Grillo. In Street Nainsmith, the Nationals can boast a great pair of catchers, and with Walter Johnson in line, McAleer will have a pitching staff that will compare favorably with any in the league. With Henry and Cunningham to add strength in the hitting on the infield, the team will be materially stronger than it was last season, even if Gessler does not materially improve his batting, for Lelevelt has but to go as well as he did last year to give satisfaction. Most every year patrons of the game here have lived in hope of seeing the team make a creditable showing in the race, but accepting an occasional brilliant spurt, the finish of the club has never been up to expectations. There is nothing certain about where the team will finish this year, and yet it would seem that McAleer, on paper at least, is better fortified this spring than any manager the Nationals have had since Washington has had representation in the American League. 
Of course, many things may happen to upset all the calculations, but it must be admitted that the prospects have never been as promising here as at the present time. There may be some satisfaction in the fact that there is hardly a chance of the Nationals finishing lower than they did last season. St. Louis seems to have the inside track for last place. It is hardly possible for Wallace's team to beat out anyone, but just how the locals will stack up against the other six clubs remains to be seen. Excepting perhaps Boston, all the other teams appear to have strengthened, and time alone will tell whether the Nationals have kept a pace with their rivals in the matter of presenting a stronger ball team. It has been natural that the followers of the Nationals should feel encouraged but not until the team has a real test in a series of championship games will it be possible to get a correct line on it. Not having played any exhibition games with teams of its own strength this spring, there's no way to judge the real strength of the team, though it must not be overlooked that in the games played in Atlanta between the two teams made up of Washington players, the regulars have always been up against high-class pitching, and they, all things considered, showed up well under those conditions. The fact that the Athletics lost the series to the Phillies does by no means indicate that Conning Mack's team has gone back. That Philadelphia National League team must not be underestimated. For several years it has been picked as having a chance to win the flag in the old league, but internal dissension has been prevalent for several years and prevented it from showing its real strength. The Phillies have won a majority of the games which they have played with the Athletics in recent years, and yet the Athletics have, with one exception in 1908, always been contenders in the American League race, while the Phillies have not been very prominent in their own campaign. Chicago and Cleveland are two teams which appear to have greatly strengthened their forces. The addition of Joe Jackson, several good young pitchers and catcher land, seems to have worked wonders with the Naps, and good judges predict that this team will be a factor in the race. But Cleveland is a pennant possibility is never taken seriously because there have been so many occasions when that team loomed up stronger than any of its rivals on paper and then has failed to make good. Chicago is undoubtedly dangerous for the addition of Lord and McConnell and Callahan and McIntyre has made a great difference. The White Sox have always been blessed with a strong pitching staff and if the new men have added offensive strength, Comiskey's team is sure to be dangerous. Detroit surely has the nucleus for a pennant winner, and Jennings' chances depend almost entirely on the performance of his pitchers. If his twirlers go good, the Tigers stand a chance to repeat, for that out and infield compares favorably with any in baseball. New York, of course, must be considered for the team finished second last year and is not believed to have been weakened in any respect since then. Of course, the Athletics appear to have the inside track. Mac's team looks as though it should repeat, and yet the unexpected is always happening, so that nothing is a sure thing in baseball. Boston and New York were the Nationals' worst stumbling blocks last season, but 12 games were won from this pair, and the Nationals' low standing in the race can be directly attributed to the poor showing against these teams. This spring, Boston and New York are the first two teams the Nationals meet. Before the locals meet any 
of the other teams. They will have 24 battles with Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, the hardest teams in the league to beat. And a pretty good line on the Nationals' chances will be had when these series are over. It is, of course, not to be hoped that a majority of these games will be victories for the Nationals, and an even break would be considered a wonderful performance and would assure a good record on the first western trip. But on form, it would seem that the locals are up against a tough proposition. The Baltimore club gets Fullerton, the Giants' young infielder, and pitcher Russenhaven, as we said earlier, goes to Springfield, Illinois. Holdout players are defended by Fred Clark. Pirate leader says it's wrong for clubs to be harsh with men because of effort to get more money. Columbus, Ohio, April 11th. Baseball clubs should appreciate past performances of good players, even when nature has caused the inevitable showing, slowing up that must come to them all. These were the words of manager Fred Clark when he put in a word of defense for passing stars who seldom get the reward they merit, namely an unconditional release, an instrument that empowers them to go where they please and make their best terms with some other club. A winning team especially should not be governed by selfish mo motives when the time arrives that it must rid itself of some star of the past. I am not opposed to this holdout game on the part of good ball players. It is the only instrument they can employ. It is an honest business move on their part. They are obliged and compelled to do many things under baseball law, but no power in the world can make them quit threatening to retire, nor to retire if they prefer. It is wrong for any club to be harsh with a player and to injure him by swinging a deal that is not to his liking simply because that man has demanded more money. He has the right to secure that money if he can. Sometimes there is no justice to the claim of players, but good men should be met halfway and their standing on the team should not be injured for anything that they have done honorably to get more money. A winning club should never be selfish in ridding itself of a man who has played good ball for several years and probably has proved a big asset to the box office in that time. When he cannot longer be used in the so-called has-been's wishes should be considered. The club should not use him as so much junk to sell for a paltry two or three thousand dollars, but should first try to every means to get him where he wants to go. It should be wrong. It would be wrong to send him to a club to which he does not want to go. This coming from a leader of a winning major league club, a little hiccup there, surprised his little group of friends who were about him. His defense of the holdout, meaning the good ball player who has worked conscientiously in the interest of his team and who honestly thinks he is entitled to an increase, was the popular thought on the part of Clark. His aim was to show that the player and the ball club may differ over the terms, but scored any practice on the part of the club, which has the balance of power, to make things unnecessarily hard for the player, even if he is too arbitrary. The case of Harry Steinfeld of the Chicago Cubs was cited by a newspaper man as a possible parallel of Clark's views. What about him? asked Clark. He's been sold to St. Paul, was the answer. It was news to Clark. He said, well, it's none of my business, but honestly, I don't think it was right to send him to a place he didn't like. 
He's been playing great ball for Chicago for many years and has made that club thousands upon thousands of dollars. He has contributed largely to their success in pennant fights and in World Series games. Steiny certainly may not be as good as he was three or four years ago, but there are clubs in the National League that would be glad to have secured him. Of course, they waived because they probably did not want to play the pay the waiver price for a man who is talked of as going back. Without meddling in the matter, I must say that in my opinion, Steinfeld merited some consideration and something should have been done to allow him to look about for himself and get the best possible job. Ted Easterly of the Naps has displayed class in the outfield at New Orleans and he seems the logical choice for the right field position on the Cleveland team this year. Moving right along, Black Eye for Brooklyn. Nap Rucker sprains ankle and may be out of game for weeks. New York, April 11th. The Brooklyn baseball team's chances of doing big things in the National League this year may be seriously jeopardized by an injury which Nap Rucker, the club's star pitcher, received in a slide for first base yesterday. Sliding into first? Oh, okay. Rucker had fielded the ball, and in attempting to beat the runner to the bag, he curled his right leg under him, severely straining the tendons in his ankle. When the accident happened, many thought the player had broken his ankle, for on attempting to rise, he fell backward with a groan. After Dolan had unlaced Rucker's shoe and massaged the ankle, the Georgia cracker was able to get up and limp off the field. While in all probability Rucker's ankle, with careful nursing, may be all right in a few weeks, the physicians say that there is grave danger that the accident may prove to be serious. In pitching, Rucker puts most of his weight on his right leg. Because of this fact, it will require careful nursing to bring the injured limb around so as to stand the strain. In its weakened condition, the ankle might give way under pressure, and unless sufficient time is allowed for it to regain its full strength, the tendons in the ankle are likely to snap and keep the Georgian on the bench for weeks. It is practically certain that Rucker will not pitch the opening game against Boston tomorrow. East may win both major league pennants this year. Athletics and Giants favorites in their respective circuits. Old league fight to be a hard one. Philadelphia April 11th. Um, prospects for the East scooping up both of the major league pennants this year are brighter than they have been at any time since 1905 when the winners were the Athletics of the City and the New York Giants. For four years in succession, the West monopolized the big baseball championships. The break came last season when the Athletics broke the spell and gathered in the American League bunting, but for the fifth season in succession, the National League honors went to a Western team, Chicago. This year, the clubs will start out with two Eastern teams' decided favorites. They are the White Elephants of Connie Mack, who are expected to repeat in the Ban Johnson circuit, and the New York Giants, who are looked upon as having the best chance in the Lynch organization. The reason for this state of affairs is easily apparent. The Athletics are what might be termed a young team, and they won so many honors last season when they broke the American League record in the matter of victories and landed the World Championship that they are naturally looked upon to repeat. 
It is not believed that the white elephants reached their highest point of development in 1910. Connie Mack is one of those who is frank enough to admit that he expects his team to be even a better machine than it was last year. At the banquet at Mahonoy City last February, Connie declared that his team won the world's championship one year before it was due to do so. The natural conclusion from this is that Connie expects his combination to be in its prime during the 1911 campaign. Hard fight ahead. Other managers think the same way, and thus the unexpected will happen if Max champions do not repeat. Despite this feeling, it's going to be a mighty hard fight for the athletics from the start of the race until the finish for every team in the circuit will naturally strive to down the title holders, while Connie will have to contend against one of the greatest evils that can befall any combination of men overconfidence. In the National League, it is natural to look for the Giants to land the flag, although the race in this organization should be even closer than in the American League. The Giants have been gradually torn down and built up during the past five seasons. They have very few of their 1905 players left, and during the past few seasons, the team has been steadily improving. It is not such a brainy team as McGraw had in 1984, in 1984, 1904, and 1905, but he has developed team play to a fine point. The Giants did not reach their point of greatest development last year. They are still coming, whereas the Chicago Cubs and the Pittsburgh team, which have helped New York to monopolize the first three places in the league race for years, appear to be going back. The Chicago Cubs are undergoing a process of reconstruction. This wonderful machine could not last forever, and Messrs. Murphy and Chance doubtless saw the handwriting on the wall when the Cubs were beaten by the Athletics in the World Series. Pittsburgh Club, after winning the World's Championship in 1909, failed to land the Nationals' pennant last season. There were internal dissensions in the team, Manager Clark Belize has straightened everything out. The Pirates are a collection of wonderful players, but ages begin to tell upon some of them, the same as it has upon some of the Cubs, and it will take some mighty fine pitching to keep them in the forefront of the battle. Phillies are dude. Dude. Dude, the, the Phillies have not been given the rating around the circuit that the individual prowess of manager Dewan and his players deserved. They're not looked at as championship caliber, but are likely to spring a big surprise before the campaign is over. Dewan has players of exceptional merit, and he has a combination of infielders and outfielders who have stood the test in previous campaigns. The club has also picked up many youngsters who should shine in fast company. At the present time, it is better fortified with substitute material than ever before, while manager Dewan has some young twirlers to spring upon his rivals who look unusually promising. The team, which counts the Phillies as not out to stir up trouble for the other championship aspirants, is due for an eye-opener. Some baseball briefs. Second baseman Kirk of the Detroit American League team was purchased by the New Orleans Southern League Club. Hal Chase is quoted as saying that the Athletics and Highlanders are my favorites for the pennant. What will they do it if they win it? Divide it between them? Abraham Nahon, former secretary of the New York American Baseball Club, 
died in the Neurological Institute from hydrophobia. Nahan is said to have contracted the disease from a pet bulldog last November. Oh, man. In a game with the Evansville Central League team yesterday, McKelvey of Minneapolis made four home runs, a double, and a single in six trips to the plate. The Minneapolis team won 18-11. to Is that a football score? Cubs have fixed a date for the raising of the pennant. Don't know, didn't know they had anything left after the Athletics got through with them last October. Catcher Schmidt of Detroit has finally got hep to the fact that he isn't a hope, not even an indirect suggestion, and therefore has dropped boxing gloves to be the target for Detroit pitchers. The petition of pitcher Ray now with Hartford and formerly of the Browns for back pay from the latter club was not allowed by the National Commission. The commission's ruling says Ray was given 10 days notice he would be released. Owing to ill health, Ray did not play after September 30th. Joe Shugden, the Tigers battery coach, who will lead the Newcastles of Ohio and Pennsylvania League this year, plans to manage from the bench. He had intended to catch, but finds his right wing is not in shape for throwing. If later improves, he will enter the game. Cleveland will have a colored baseball team this year that is expected to rival the Cuban Giants and other strong colored teams. The team will be known as the Pekin Tigers and will be managed by J.C. Morgan, formerly manager of a St. Louis colored team. Colored teams will be played at League Park when the Naps are away, and the Tigers will play on the road when the Naps are at home. President Murphy of the Chicago National League Baseball Club purchased four outfielders from the Louisville Club of the American Association. Two of them, Keener and Kaiser, formerly were Chicago recruits, and Wolf and Smith are said to show promise. St. Louis news item. Roger Brezhnehan, severe cold. Ivy Wingo, severe cold. Harry Sally, cold and back. Jimmy Austin, throwing arm very slower. Jimmy Murray, cold in head and chest. Joe Lake, cold in back. The Mound City ought to be a good market for quinine and liniment. Arthur Irwin, Dean of the American League Scouts, claims a unique record, that of having under him as players when he was a manager, five men who managed American League clubs last season. The quintet was composed of Connie Mack, Jim McGuire, who I never knew were twins, and who were Irwin's catchers at Washington, Huey Duffy, Patsy Donovan, and George Stallings. Larry Shaffley, the former big leaguer who with Charles Dooley is part owner of the Troy Club in the New York State League, has success, succeeded in purchasing his release from the Newark Club after having his proposition turned down repeatedly by manager McGinnity. In order to get away from Newark, Shaffley was obliged to secure the release of infielder Hall from Baltimore and turn him over to Newark. The Philadelphia Nationals captured the final game of the interleague series with the local Americans yesterday, but lost the series three games to two. 
The score of the final game was 5-2, to two, the Nationals hitting the ball to better advantage. Tate of Taylor Tex pitched the last two innings for the Americans, where he passed three men and was hit for three hits. Made-over players seem to be the rule in Major League Baseball just now. The Cleveland club has had so much success in changing men from one position to another, and the management is already planning one other change. Guy Fisher may eventually be hailed as the star outfielder of the Cleveland club instead of a catcher. Guy has been assured already that his future as a member of the Cleveland club is settled for the present, at least. There is one American League magnet who probably would welcome the chance to get first baseman Hornhost of the Naps, and that is Bob Hedges of St. Louis. It is reported that Bob has been anxious to get a left-handed first sacker for a year or so, but the chance never really presented itself. In fact, one of the New York New Orleans players, who still hails from St. Louis, he says that Hedges intimated to him that he might refuse to grant waivers to Honehurst in the event of Cleveland trying to get the left-hander out circuit. Manager Monty Cross announces that Earl Mack, son of Connie Mack, will be first catcher for Scranton of the New York State League. Grover Land, the Knapp star catcher, used to be an actor. He confesses it, and Johnny Ray, the famous comedian, testifies to the same. Muggsy McGraw and his scrappy Giants have been boycotted from future exhibition games in the Southern League. Rowdyism is said to be the cause. Winning teams okay. Managers refuse to break up outfits that succeed. Stand pat, the slogan. Nearly every baseball leader is willing to lead well enough alone. Few baseball managers will trifle with a winning combination. Some are superstitious, others are not. Yet nearly all of them believe in the axiom, let well enough alone. After Frank Chance developed a winning outfit out of the Cubs, he refused to tinker <laughs> with the combination. And this Cub combination won four National League championships, competed in four World Series, losing two of them and winning two, and won 530 National League Championship games. A feat, 530, a feat that has never been duplicated in five years. Radical changes may be made in the team this season. Chance may consider his winning combination shattered since the World Series route, but he refused to medal when the club was going good. Connie Mack had hardly time to unpack his baggage when someone propounded this question to him the other day. Why don't you make an outfielder out of Baker and play McGinnis at third? For one good reason, replied the elongated manager. I have a winning infield combination and I wouldn't think of tampering with it. it took me some years to get this infield together and I am going to think a whole while before breaking it up. Which leaves it for Granton, granted, that Davis at first, Collins at second, Barry at short, and Baker at third are 1911 fixtures. It is the best infield in the business. In the spring of 1908, Huey Jennings went on record as saying, it will be a difficult matter to find a better working infield than we will have this year, 
meaning 1908. Rossman, Schaefer, Coughlin, and O'Leary are in the prime of life and ought to do as well as they did last year. I feel confident that I will not be forced to touch this combination. Jennings stuck to his winning combination until it became apparent that the situation was alarming. Huey deemed it advisable to do some shifting. Had the team been winning, Jennings would not have considered changes. For two seasons, years in which Boston won pennants in succession, 1903 and 1904, the Red Sox boasted of the greatest winning combination in Candy Lachance at first, Hobe Ferris at second, Freddie Parent at short, and Jimmy Collins at third. After Boston won the flag in 1903, President H.W. Kililia eulogized his players and added that he would consider no changes for 1904. I have the best infield in the country, he said. This remark must have impressed John I. Taylor, who bought the club in 1904. President Taylor agreed with manager Collins that the infield above everything else was to remain intact. No one was disturbed in the club gallop through the league with a second gonfalon. President Taylor believed his winning infield would prove successful again, refused to consider any changes at the start of the 1905 campaign. Before the season was half over, the Boston club flew the flag of distress. The team was in bad shape for an infield. Even the peerless Collins was slipping. President Taylor perceived that his combination was no longer a winning one, so he started to repair. It was not long before all four of the infielders lost out. Parent is the only one who managed to stick in fast company. He is an outfielder now with the Chicago White Sox. There was one manager who figured that Jimmy Collins was still a great third baseman. It was Connie Mack. He paid $10,000 and tossed in schoolboy Jack Knight as a bargain. Collins could not win a pennant for Mack, but he gave the team great prestige. It did not take Mack long, however, to find out that he was worsted in the deal. But Mack can and find consolation in the fact that Boston overlooked a bet also. Knight never did appeal to President Taylor and was also passed up without much of a trial. Baltimore secured the player. He starred there and New York bought him. Today is recognized as one of the American League's best all-around players. If Knight had a reliable arm, the New York club could get a fancy price for him. There were other great infield combinations. Baltimore had a fast infield in Jack Doyle at first, Heine Wrights at second, Huey Jennings at short, and John J. McGraw at third. This infield was not a bit better than the Boston infielders of 1898. Frank Tenney was holding down first base, Link Lowe played second, Herman Long was the shortstop, and Jimmy Collins cavorted around third. There were two seasons when the Cubs' combination, consisting of first baseman Frank Chance, and yes, uh, yeah, we're over an hour, it looks like, or there's somewhere thereabouts. Yep, that's, that's just, or more is the way it's going to be, and I guess if it gets really unwieldy, we'll try uh, splitting days in half, which we've already done once. Um, let's just keep this going, and I hope you are uh, learning. I'm So many of these names, they're just starting to stick. Uh, to players I've never heard of, and this is all 
quite fascinating to me, as you may be able to tell. And uh, I hope you're along and enjoying it. And uh, you real baseball scholars who are listening to this, uh, and, and if you've got a real grasp better than me, which I would imagine there are numerous baseball uh, fans and historians who know more that, and, and can add so much to this, please be in touch. Maybe you could add something or we could include you in some way or you can send me some notes I could read or some of your commentary because uh, I am uh, a, an amateur at this. I mean, if this was a podcast about, say, uh, mid-70s baseball, oh, yeah, I would be right there and uh, have a lot of anecdotes. Uh, but this is this is so fun and fresh and we even got uh, talk of the gambling situation. So, uh, yeah, we're getting right into it. And, and man, I'm, I still can't get over Iron Joe McGinnity laid low because when he was cranking up his car to start it, the crank failed. That That's just... I love the trivia part especially. Um, anyhow, uh, again, if you got any comments or anything, uh, send them my way. At, and the email address to do that is kpqr.torc at gmail.com. And uh, until the next time we meet, keep on with the baseball and uh, let's see, uh, set the controls for the heart of the fun. That's it.